Support for Meaningful Conversations comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website, choose a template you love, and customize it by adding your very own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Create beautiful websites with video backgrounds, parallax animation, and more all without knowing how to code. With the Wix editor, you can design the most stunning websites all on your own. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. So create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Meaningful Conversations to get 10% off. I'm Maria Shriver, and this is Meaningful Conversations. On every episode, we'll take a journey into the lives of inspiring, thoughtful, thought-provoking people. People who are smart, spirited, and spiritual. People who have done extraordinary things to make a positive impact on our world. These are people I respect and admire. People who inspire me. I want them to share their stories, their experiences, their wisdom, and their feelings with you. I hope we can come together in community to reflect on the issues and topics that we're all thinking about, but no one seems to be talking about. I hope that you're inspired to have more meaningful conversations with the people in your life. Father James Martin is someone whom I've admired for quite some time. He's a Jesuit priest, a best-selling author, and the editor-at-large of America Magazine. He's also someone who isn't afraid to speak up and speak out about the Catholic Church today. Day in, day out, Father Martin uses his voice to advocate for refugees, migrants, the LGBT community, the environment, and more. His views aren't always embraced by everyone, but I respect him for never wavering and for always standing up for what he believes. As a lifelong Catholic myself, our conversation today is an important one to me because, well, it isn't so easy to be a Catholic these days. I think those of us who are Catholics know that and feel that, and that's why I wanted to talk with Father Martin, and his perspective always gives me something to think about, and I'm so grateful that he's joining us on Meaningful Conversations today, and I hope he'll give you something to think about as well. So I'm really excited to welcome to Meaningful Conversations, Father James Martin. We're actually sitting here talking in the America Magazine headquarters in New York City. It's raining outside, so we have found sanctuary in the sanctuary, the chapel here at America Magazine, where he is editor-at-large. And Father Martin is a friend. I follow him on Twitter. He is a writer. He uses his voice in all kinds of ways. And I wanted to come and talk to him because as a Catholic, I'm interested in where he thinks we are when it comes to Catholicism today. And also I'm an admirer of his because he uses his voice in areas that he gets pushback from his own church. So welcome, Father Martin, to Meaningful Conversations. Thanks. My pleasure. Welcome to America Media. Yeah, there you go. So let me ask you, let me begin with kind of where you find meaning in your life. How do you go about making your life meaningful? Well, it's great that you're asking me this in a chapel because it's pretty obvious. I find my meaning in God, more specifically in Jesus Christ. I'm a member 
of the Society of Jesus, commonly known as the Jesuits. And so my life is founded on uh, Jesus's teachings, and he's he's at the center of my life. So that's actually an easy question for me to answer. Is it because, you know, so many priests and or nuns have maybe found Jesus to be the center of their lives and then have deviated from that or have chosen to leave the priesthood or leave the convent and find another way. Have you ever wavered in that finding him to be the center of your life? No, I've never wavered in finding him. I really came to religion pretty late. I grew up as a kind of lukewarm Catholic, and I think it wasn't until my late 20s that I really started to think more seriously about this. It's it's hard sometimes to have faith in the church and in religion, but my faith in Jesus has really never wavered. I mean, he's constant. I mean, even though there's all these, you know, crises in the church, he, he remains constant. So how do you do that? So you you're, you're find meaning in him, you're sure of your faith, we're sitting in a chapel, you didn't even waver with that question, and yet you say it's hard to not waver when it comes to the church. And I find myself as a Catholic feeling the same way. I love my parish, St. Monica's in Santa Monica, California. I love my pastor, Monsignor Torgerson, and I'm really angry at my church. And I love a lot of the nuns that educated me, and I went to the Jesuits at Georgetown, and I minored in theology. And yet I'm, so I find myself really questioning my church because of what's going on in my church. Yeah, that's not surprising. Your experience actually is very similar to most people's experience, which is exactly what you said. I love my pastor. I love my church. I'm angry at, for example, the bishops and the Vatican, those kinds of things. And I think one of the first things for people to do is to admit that that's real, right? These are these are not fake questions. These are not, you know, small crises we're going through, but it's a human institution. And the church truly has been sinful ever since St. Peter. I mean, you know, the first pope traditionally is a guy who denied Jesus three times, and the apostles were kind of a mess. Uh, Peter and Paul were always arguing. So a little church history, I think, puts it in a little bit of perspective, but you know, also to be able to raise your voice as a committed layperson and say, this is not acceptable, and how can I help change the church? That's important, too. So how do we, because it, it, it's more than, you know, like the first pope who denied Jesus or people arguing. It's really devastating crimes, um, crimes against mm-hmm you know, individuals uh, whose lives are devastated, and it's the church's reaction and handling of that. So how do we change that? Well, I think it's everyone's uh, responsibility, especially people in authority, Pope Francis, all of the bishops, to raise their voices. And I, I think that it's a, it's a question that they're trying to address now in an upcoming meeting uh, in the Vatican. You know, there are a couple ways of doing it. Number one, I think, is this the Dallas Charter in 2002 that said that any priest who's been credibly accused of an accusation is removed immediately. I think restitution to victims, and I think basically rooting out this culture of clericalism and privilege that allowed people to get away with these things and allowed priests' voices to be paid attention more than lay people's voices, right? I mean, if a or priest nuns, could, yeah, or nuns, but but priests who would come in and say I didn't do that were trusted more than parents and victims, and so that's yeah. to me that's clericalism, and that needs to be rooted out. How? It's very hard. I think the the way that it's being sort of unearthed, unearthed now, that these lists are coming out of names of priests is one step. In other words, transparency, you know, mm-hmm. showing people exactly what happened. But really also for the lay people to stand up and say, I'm not going to take this anymore. And I don't need to sort of 
listen to things that are clearly false, right? And it's it's pushback from the lay people too. So but, you know, I'm I'm struggling with that because it's a yeah. hard question. How right? It's the same question of how we root it out in in in, in any other situation. You know, because child abuse unfortunately takes place in schools and families, and so it's a psychological problem. But for the church. I think it's really a, a problem of clericalism, where the the priests were trusted more than the children and the and the, the victims' parents too. Yeah, I had so much hope for, and I I really do love Pope Francis. I, Me too. I have found his teachings on the environment, his teachings on social justice, his teachings on poverty, really inspiring. And yet, I feel he needs to do something really dramatic. I agree. Really dramatic yeah, I agree. that says, "Hey, this is a new church." I think in the United States there are sort of restrictions now in terms of who can be, you know, in the priesthood and who can minister. I think one of the challenges is doing that overseas, you know, in places where they're not talking about child sex abuse, you know, they're not talking about sexuality, they're not willing to kind of give up that clerical status, and I think that's hard. So in the States, I think actually we've made a lot of progress. But then when you look at, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and Latin America, and it's, it's, it's a much different story. I don't think they're really there yet. But you say we've made a lot of progress in the United States. I watch you often get pushback mm-hmm. here in the United States mm-hmm. for your writings on the gay community, women, and you're disinvited from places. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. How does that make you feel? You know, initially it bothered me, but then I thought, you know, Talk to me about that. Like, what bothered you? Well, it was odd to be kind of, you know, the target of a lot of lies and personal vilification. And, you know, I wrote this book called Building a Bridge about LGBT Catholics and welcoming them. You know, and suddenly, and the, the book is all in line with church teaching. It doesn't challenge anything. It's basically about just treating people with love and compassion. You know, it doesn't say anything about same-sex marriage or any hot-button topics. But it invites the gay community into the church. Yeah, and actually they already yeah. are in the church. Which I 100% agree yeah, with. Yeah, and the idea is to, to welcome people into what is already their church. I mean, they're baptized Catholics. But, you know, as a result, I got called names on Twitter and, you know, heretic and sodomite and all sorts of... Uh, you know, epithets. And then I was disinvited to a couple talks. What happened, though, was I think people realized that. And then I was invited to a lot of talks by like Cardinal Supich in Chicago, Archbishop Gregory in Atlanta. I was invited to the Vatican's World Meeting of Families in Dublin. So that kind of turned around. But eventually I said, you know, frankly, my mantra is who cares? That's my mantra. I mean, if there's some homophobic people who aren't going to listen to that stuff, who cares? I mean, am I going to stop, you know, advocating for people on the margins? I mean, Really, what kind of a Jesuit would I be if I'd let that kind of stuff online bother me? And, you know, as you know very well, a lot of people online who push back are, to use a theological term, crazy. Yeah, I found that I retweeted you or something like that, and I started getting Mm -hmm. attacked as like a cafeteria Catholic. I'm Mm -hmm. terrible. You know, I was like, wow. But I think that there there is a division, to be honest, right, in the church. Even the Pope is pushing back mm-hmm. amongst very conservative end of the church. And I don't think people really understand how political, really political the church is. Yeah, the church, I would say political in a, a sort of philosophical sense. I mean, the Pope tries not to be, you know, doing any talking points for Democrats or Republicans. No, and, I don't yeah, mean that. But sure. I mean that he's, he has his own people to push back against. There's oh, yeah. a lot of back and forth in at the Vatican. There's a lot of people who don't like what he's doing. Yeah, he's very threatening. And one of the reasons is, uh, to get back to what we were talking about earlier, is this sort of attack on clericalism and privilege and the idea that, you know, cardinals and bishops would be treated like, you know, literally princes of the church, you know, which is what they're often called. And that has garnered a lot of uh, anger from people. 
I think the idea that, um, you know, he would ask people to sort of take more of a stance with the poor, to open things up a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, trying to welcome people that are usually not welcome, that really angers people. Anytime you sort of treat people on the margins with mercy, right? It, it angers people. people but isn't get that what mad. Jesus is all about? Yes, but when you see <laughs> what mean, he does... It's so confusing. It is, but it, you know, it's funny. It is and it isn't. It's, it is what Jesus is all about. But you see in the Gospels over and over again, when Jesus does the same thing, he gets pushed back too. So when he offers mercy to, you know, the woman at the well or Zacchaeus or, you know, lepers, you know, people who are kind of on the outs or, or a Roman centurion or a tax collector, he gets the same pushback. There's a great story in the Gospel of Luke about the, the story of Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector, and Jesus reaches out to him. And there's a line when Jesus reaches out to him that says, all who saw it began to grumble. And I often think, well, that's what's going on in our church and online. People don't like the fact that we're being merciful, and they're grumbling. So, frankly, it seems to me there's two places to stand. You can stand with Jesus, who offers people mercy, or you can stand with the crowd who grumbles. But what's that? What do you think that is with the crowd that grumbles? Because they're human, mm-hmm. and mercy, compassion, and acceptance and invitation would be what they would want too. That's a great question, and that that is the mystery. Why can we not see that? What we want, exactly what you said, Maria, what we want, mercy and love and compassion, is what people like Pope Francis and others are offering people. And I think a lot of times they're so bound by the rules, and they think in a very shallow way that their Christianity is just about following rules, when it's really, it's about following a person, you know, who embodies mercy. You know, I always say, Mm. God didn't come down to us as a book. I mean, God came down to us as a person, as mystery, and who we're trying to understand and, and see how he acts and see how he operates. But a lot of people are just so tied up with rules that anything that seems that it's uh, breaking those rules or bending those rules is just anathema to them. Yeah, and it seems to me kind of what I have kind of come to see the church for myself as I I grew up with the church feeling that the church was very judgmental, Mm -hmm. right and wrong, good and bad, sin, no sin. And like, if you were in the sin section, whoa. Mm -hmm. And now I try to look at it as a place that welcomes flawed people, imperfect people, because that's actually what we all are. People who have anger, people who have doubts, people who have shame, people who've made mistakes. And that Jesus Christ himself was a man who expressed anger, who Mm -hmm. himself, you know, was a flawed human being and who befriended people who were flawed. It wasn't like he was hanging in the country club, right? He was hanging with like Mary Magdalene, right? Well, everyone, all the disciples are sinful. We're all, you know, except for Jesus and Mary, we're all sinful. Everybody in the church is sinful. The Pope has said in one of his first interviews, who am I? I'm a sinner who's loved by God. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, there are important rules and regulations, but it's how do we apply them? Uh, How do we understand them in the context of people's lives? And also, how does Jesus apply them? I mean, over and over again, he is, his highest rule is the law of love. And anything that doesn't help people live loving lives is, is set aside by Jesus. Right, but I don't, I don't feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like Jesus welcomed flawed people. Jesus, because and everybody's never, flawed. Yeah, and he never said, I'm perfect. Jesus, I would say, would be the perfect human being, but that wasn't... But he didn't say that. No, and he, he no. I mean, he, you know, he talks about himself being as the son of God, and we believe yeah. he's fully human, fully divine. But yes, your point is, Everyone in the church is flawed, including his disciples who were flawed. Right. I mean, we're kind of a mess. And so the idea that there's... I see that as a mess, actually. Well, right. But yeah. I mean, it's a good mess. But, you know, for Jesus, there's no, there's no one who's like them. 
There's no one who's them, who's yeah. other. Who's it's other. all us. It's, it's as Greg Boyle says out in LA, who works right. with gang members, there's no us and them for Jesus. There's just us. And I think in the past, I mean, in the church that I grew up in, you know, with you, there were, there was us and them, you know, there was the inside and the outside and there's, there's no inside and outside for Jesus. It's all the same. It's all us. It's all inside. So it's, there's no other. Exactly. Right. Which exactly. is, there's, I think, such a beautiful concept and that Jesus's philosophy was love. Yeah. And, you know, you think about who do we make into other these days? You know, the LGBT person, the refugee, the migrant, right? They're, they're other. They're not like us. They're different. They look different. They have a different religion. And Jesus is always in the Gospels going out to people who are seen as in that time as other, the Roman centurion, the tax collector, the woman at the well. And he's bringing them in. And again, you know, he's showing that for Jesus, there's no one who's other. It's all us. So when you say that Jesus is, you know, kind of template or his philosophy, his teachings is his gospel, so to speak, is love. Mm-hmm. And we use the word love a lot. I love chocolate. I love seeing you. <laughs> I love you. Whatever. What what is love in action look like? That's a great question. It's interesting. Dorothy Day, the founder yes. of the Catholic Worker, I know you know, to quote Dostoevsky, who said that love in novels is really sweet and beautiful. Love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing, meaning it's tough. You know, it's self-sacrificing. I mean, it's, it's caring for people who don't look like you. It's, it's, it's caring for a, a parent who's aging, right? It's, it's, it's putting yourself out there. And so there's, there's regular love. There's sort of romantic love, which is wonderful. But Jesus's form of love is a really self-sacrificial love. It, it's sort of, it's entering into, as, as one of my Jesuit friends likes to say, I love this, that love and mercy is entering into the chaos of another person's life. Wow, I love the Isn't repeat that, beautiful? that. Repeat that. Love and mercy is entering into the chaos of another person's life. That's Father Jim Keenan. Isn't that great? We smile when that, you yeah. Yeah, because it's it's oh, all right. Wow. Everybody's life is just chaotic and, and what does it mean to love? It's not like I'm gonna send you a little card, you know, if you, if your life is messed up. It's I'm gonna be with you. And what does God do? God enters into the chaos of our lives as Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, God comes into our life, God comes into the world as as Jesus. And, and our lives, you know, in first century Palestine and today are chaotic. And that's what Jesus does, and that's what we're called to do, to emulate him. I, I like that because it's first, like we, we started by saying, first recognizing that the church as an institution is flawed, and that it's important to give mm-hmm. truth to that. And then equally as important to give truth to the chaos of our own lives yeah. and not thinking that person's life isn't flawed or chaotic and you know, or my life is so great, right? That first admitting that all of us have chaos. Right, that's a good point. And also that God can come into our lives even though they're chaotic. You know, your your spiritual house doesn't have to be all tidy and neat for God to come in. Yeah, I think I love that when, when I hear my parish priest or I go and I hear someone preach about that it's often, you know, that people feel like, oh, I'm in a terrible place, and why would Jesus, or why would God come to me? And that's exactly the kind of time that God comes to you, or that Jesus befriends you. And it's not, as my parish priest says, communion is not for the perfect. Mm-hmm. It's for the flawed. It's for, if you're struggling, come on in. You know, I frank- I'm sitting here, I frankly never thought of it that way. That is a great insight, that that when he meets these people, that's a great insight. It is often at their worst. Yeah. You know, the beggar who's sitting by the side of the road, the, the woman at the well who's very upset, the tax collector, you know, who's on the outs. That's a great insight. I never thought of that, that he comes to them 
when they are at their worst. And when right. their lives are chaotic and messy and they probably think, you know, God has abandoned me. Yeah, and who's going to love me? Yeah, and oftentimes <laughs> that's the time where we're most open to God because we feel the most vulnerable. Right, You right. know, and, and our defenses are down often. You know, we don't, we're trying not to be cool and I'm, I'm in control and everything's under control. And that's when we're able to let God in, you know, in the, in the, in the form of other people who help us and prayer and the church. And it's a great insight. Thank you. Uh, are you optimistic about the Catholic Church in 2019? Well, I would say I guess I'm hopeful. I mean, you know, we believe in the resurrection, that God can do anything. I, I do think this is a real crucifixion for the Church, you know, and one that it's brought on itself, right? I don't think this is not exterior to the Church. But in crucifixion, you hope for new life, right? I mean, the disciples on Good Friday and— Wait a second. Let me interrupt you. Sure. There. A crucifixion for the Church. Yeah, that's a powerful yeah and it's yeah. not and it's the church that's done it to itself right I mean we, and so just like we ask I suppose for Jesus to come in in our own personal crucifixions in our own struggles in our own chaos how can people come into the church that as in all crucifixions you have to say I brought this up not always brought it on yourself but you have to ask for help mm-hmm. so does the church have to ask for help from its lay members yes. Yes, and I think the church needs to be willing to uh, to let certain things die, right? I mean, to, to to die to itself, to die to the sense of privilege and clericalism and arrogance and secrecy and, and all the stuff that led to the sex abuse crisis, which is so complex. But to let that stuff die and let go of it and say, we're going to be a new church and we're not going to be— And apologize. Oh, absolutely. Make yeah, amends. Ab- yes, be honest apologize, make amends. You know, I often use the the sacrament of uh, confession, of reconciliation. You know, in order to be forgiven, you have to apologize. You have to fully confess your sins, not like, you know, piecemeal. Fully confess. Be willing to do penance. That's another thing the church hasn't done yet. And then, you know, also be willing to, you know, accept new life. So my sense is that in this Good Friday, there is new life waiting to happen, but we have to be willing to let the old life die. Basically, I think there's a really there's truly and I think people would say this without batting an eye that there is part of the church that has to die. That is just the church of power and arrogance and clericalism that has to die. So is that up to Pope Francis? He's going to have to, for lack of a not kill off part of the church, but let part of the church die under his watch. It's a well, Gorbachev moment in a way. Yeah, and I think um, <laughs> it's, it's you know, I would say, you know, theologically it's up to all of us, right? It's up to all of us to sort of work together. But truly, in this case, it is up to the Pope and, and a lot of the Catholic leaders because there are, you know, it's it's fashionable to say, well, you know, we're all we're all part of this world. But truly, there are some things that in, in this case, only the pope and bishops can do in terms of setting rules and regulations and and making sure the kind of stuff that led to the sex abuse stuff ends. Right. So how would I, as a member of my parish, how will I be able to tell that I'm getting a new church? That's a great question. What would you say to that? I mean, you're you're a good Catholic. How, how, what would you like to see? Well, I'd like to see women in higher positions mm-hmm. of leadership mm-hmm. and authority. And I'd like to see women, I see women all the time doing work in my church, mm-hmm. you know, doing all the lay work. And I, I know there's this whole debate about women priests and women don't need to be priests. The nuns are doing great work, which I know they are. But it just still feels to me like women are told that position is not 
open to you. That position of perceived power is not open to you. And what would be wrong with that? Well, and one of the great things that's happening is the Pope is considering women deacons, mm-hmm. which is a, would be a huge step forward. So that would be a deacons. beginning. That would be a beginning. I think that for me, in addition to some of the stuff you're talking about in terms of you know women in more leadership roles, I would like to see married men in leadership roles right. in the church. That would be incredible. For I me, think, it's, too. it's 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 getting rid of the church of power and going back to the church of humility, because Jesus was not about you know setting up this imperial church. Jesus was setting up a church, you didn't even call it a church, but, you know, an ecclesia of, of service. His leadership is basically getting down on his hands and knees and washing people's feet. I've often thought that, you know, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Last Supper is the Eucharist, which, of course, we reenact uh, at Mass every um, Sunday, sometimes every day for us. But in the Gospel of John, the Last Supper is the washing of the feet. And I've often thought, what would it have been like if in our church— Every Sunday, instead of breaking the bread, or in addition to breaking the bread, the priest washed people's feet as a sign of humility. So I think we need a church that's, that's humble, and a church of, of one where, where the, the sort of power structure dies. And that is something, I think, to bring it back to what we're talking about, that Pope Francis is trying to do. And that's why he's getting a lot of pushback, because people in power never want to give up power, right? And if he doesn't do these changes, if he doesn't make women deacons, if perhaps he doesn't allow married priests— what do you think is going to happen to the church if he doesn't do something dramatic? Well, I think that it would be hard for him to leave the papacy and whenever God takes him without addressing at least the sex abuse crisis. I mean, that is, for me, number one, uh, even before some of those other things, because mm-hmm. I don't think we have the trust of, of the people of God, of, of anybody, you know, until, until we address that. The other things in terms of, of power and letting go of power and bringing more people into roles of power and leadership, that could be, you know, his successor, you know, Francis II, we hope. So, you know, we, we also have to be careful not to put too much on him. He's an 82, 83-year-old man, and he has, you know, certain things that he can focus on. I think if I—he doesn't call me for advice, but I think truly the sex abuse crisis is the most important problem. But the problem with that is other parts of the world do not think that. And so it's how does he exercise that power but also, you know, keep the church together? I suppose like any parent, right? You have to have this is my house, or this is our house, and here are the rules, and here's mm-hmm. what we tolerate, and here's what we don't. Mm-hmm. I hope he can do that. There's a lot of pushback from other cultures, but I hope he can do that. And he's pretty tough, you know, former Jesuit provincial. He's pretty tough. And he had went through his own kind of dark night, mm-hmm. and which I think is always good to have a person uh, who's been through their own struggles their own dark night of the soul, right? And came out the other end. Yeah, and he's also someone, as a, I'm a Jesuit as well. We take, believe it or not, um, we have vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We also make a promise, which is not very well known, at our final vows, never to strive for or ambition any high office in the church or in the Jesuits. So in other words, we make a public promise never to like be ambitious and never to try to like, you know, climb and stuff like that. So you have a guy who's the Pope now who never wanted this kind of uh, leadership. He wasn't into power. And I think that's very threatening to people. I mean, you know, I don't have to live in the apostolic palace. I don't have to wear the red shoes. I don't have to drive in a big car. I'm really not interested in that stuff. That is threatening to people in power. Have you met him? Once, briefly. Hello. You know, <laughs> he shook his hand. <laughs> what was that moment like? Uh, very brief. <laughs> it was that. I mean, it was exciting. It was. Yeah. It went, came and went so fast that... Have you ever met him? No, I haven't. Yeah. But I covered when he became Pope, 
but uh, I know a lot of one of the nice things is I know a lot of his friends mm-hmm. and so I hear a lot of funny so stories. So you can tell from we can tell a lot from our friends, right? Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. But I also hear funny stories about him. He was being interviewed by a friend of mine recently and my friend just like we we're sitting together bent down to put a microphone on him and kneeled down in front of him and was clipping a microphone on his cassock and the pope said to my friend, "What do you think I'm Jesus? Get up. You don't have to kneel." <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's yeah. very light and he's very funny and there's a lot of stories that Jesuits tell, too, about how funny he is. And he did his first American interview here with the America magazine, didn't he? He did, yeah. Right. We um, we had a guy, Antonio Spadaro, who was the editor of a Catholic magazine, Chivalta Catolica, who did it on behalf of all the Jesuit publications. That was really exciting. That was his first big interview. And that's where he said, you know, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner loved by God. That's how he identified himself, primarily. Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. With stress and anxiety, many people can often feel exhausted during the day. Then comes bedtime and they just can't fall asleep. Well, if worrying is affecting your days and nights, then it's probably also affecting your overall health. That's why Meaningful Conversation is partnering with Calm, the number one app to help you reduce anxiety and stress and help you sleep better. More than 40 million people around the world have downloaded it. 40 million. Calm offers a number of tools to help you relax, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, sleep stories, which are like bedtime stories for adults, and even soothing music. So head to calm.com slash meaningful today. And listeners of this podcast will get 25% off of a Calm premium subscription. That's unlimited access to all of Calm's content at calm.com slash meaningful. Get calm and stop stressing. Now let's get back to the conversation. So what is these, uh, we, we started this interview by me saying that you are the editor-at-large of America Magazine, which is the Jesuit magazine. What is your hope for that magazine? What do you think its purpose is out in the world today at 2019? Well, I, I can say we are supposed to be a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. That is our tagline. So Smart we, Catholic take? On faith and culture. Faith and culture. So we've okay. been around this since... This is a smart Catholic yes, take on faith and, and culture. Yes, and I'm with a smart Catholic. <laughs> um, so we, we've been around since 1909, and basically we cover things that are interested interesting to Catholics and things of interest to people who are interested in Catholics, and it's pretty broad, and we've just uh, expanded. We're much more online now. We have videos and podcasts, and it's pretty exciting. And we have, we're sitting in our brand new office, which is pretty great. What's interesting to Catholics today? Well, <laughs> I would say they really are focused on sex abuse. And I think there's no one who is not affected by that either personally. You know, there are people who are obviously the, the worst cases would be victims and their families and their friends. But, you know, as you say, you know, in the parishes, people are very upset about that. I think the questions of immigration are really, you know, roiling Catholic parishes, especially, you know, along the border. And I think, but by the same token, in addition to those big questions, sex abuse and and immigration, 
people, you know, in the parishes are concerned with their daily lives and, you know, someone dying in their family or someone getting first communion or someone getting baptized. And so those things are those things are kind of constant, too. I mean, I when I talk about when I talk with this about friends of mine who run parishes, they say, sure, they're concerned about that. They're also, you know, they, they also have, you know, someone who's sick in the hospital and things like that. So they rely on the church in that way, too. I was telling my children right before Christmas about our parish priest, Monsignor Torgerson, who was talking, who's great, and who was talking at church and saying that he had been living in Santa Monica. He'd been our pastor for 30, I think four years, somewhere in there. And that he had seen, and the church is seven blocks from the ocean. Nice. And that he had only seen a sunset two times in his entire time of being our parish priest. Because the work of a parish priest is 24 seven, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And that the work of a parish priest is the call in the middle of the night, can you come to the hospital? Can you, I'm struggling in my marriage, I'm struggling with my kid, I'm struggling, I'm flawed, I'm this, I need a confession, I need hope, I need help, I need, and that his New Year's resolution was to try to see a sunrise. Nice. And I told that, and my kids were like, what? How is that even possible? Yeah, they work hard. Well, I would say that's a that's a beautiful image for the life of the parish priest. I always say to people, look, I know mothers and fathers and and lawyers and teachers and religious sisters and brothers. They all work hard. I know that. This is not meant to diminish that. Parish priests amaze me. I mean, there's so few. There's so many fewer of them now. Yeah. And there's usually in, in most parishes, there's usually one priest. He's usually in his seventies. There might be a retired priest who's ninety. Right. And maybe if you're lucky, you have a person that helps you on the weekends. And that guy has to do, the parish priest has to do baptisms, funerals, homilies, uh, you know, run schools. It's, it's incredible. And they're usually really tired, too. And so my hat, uh, you know, is taken off to them. They, they do amazing work. They work harder than I do, that's for sure. What about that, though? You were saying most parish priests are 70 mm-hmm. or 60 and that mm-hmm. they're not a lot of young men mm-hmm. <laughs> coming into the priesthood. It's the church, by that very fact, has got to change. And there are not a lot of women who are becoming nuns. I was educated in the convent of the Sacred Heart. There were nuns everywhere. I think the they Holy don't... Spirit is. I think the Holy Spirit is is saying that lay people need to take their rightful place in leadership roles. One of the great things was uh, there's a bishop in Connecticut named Bishop Frank Caggiano, who recently made headlines by appointing a woman, a lay woman, as head of a parish with authority over the priests. And so <gasps> she essentially, she's, I think it's called parish administrator, and she essentially, the priests report to her. So, you know, she probably schedules the masses and things like that. That's a big deal. And now there's a great role for a, a woman to be a leader. And, you know, for example, in the case she's like of- She's like the CEO of the church. Pretty much, yeah. And so in the case of, say, Monsignor Torgerson, you know, maybe he would be doing, you know, the masses and she would be doing all the finances and running things. And why not? I think it's a great role for for women, and I think it was very courageous of uh, Bishop Caggiano to do that. So Did there's, he get a lot of pushback on that? You know what? He didn't. And I think one of the reasons is, to your point, Maria, that people know, you know how few priests there are and how much parishes need this, and also how talented these people are, you know, these lay people. And this woman, you know, is incredibly talented. I think she's a theology professor, and, you know, she knows all this stuff. She can do that. Do you think we see so many people who are boomers, people who are 50, 60, 70, wanting to be caregivers, stepping and wanting to join the Peace Corps? And if they were allowed, you know, if 
you know, it wasn't two strikes against you that you'd been married or that you're divorced or that you could become a person in religious life. You could do the work of a nun or a priest could come back into the church. All of these priests that left the church to get married, why can't they come back into the church? It's not like they're not holy people anymore. They were in love with Jesus and maybe they found like they were also in love with a woman and wanted to have a family, but we need them. Well, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there are, there's a, the great untapped resource is the talents of lay people, you know, who are seen, who were seen, I think, up until the 60s, up until the Second Vatican Council is kind of less than. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as uh, Blessed John Henry Newman said, the church looks pretty stupid without lay people. And so I think the, the, the sort of call for the, the church leadership now is to really recognize their leadership capacities and not in a kind of patronizing way, but in a real way, in the way that Bishop Caggiano is doing it in terms right. of appointing her as, you know, essentially administrator. There's also women who are chancellors of dioceses and archdioceses, so kind of the top administrative role is, is a woman or a sister. And so it's happening. The Pope has called for more, quote-unquote, incisive roles for women in terms of leadership, and he's doing his best. I think this women deacons things could be a big deal. The, 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 the commission, the Papal Commission on Women Deacons found that there is evidence of women deacons for the first millennium in the church. So that they were, they were. So there's precedent. There is precedent. And now truly the ball is in the Pope's court. What is he going to do? And there was a survey just that came out um, the other day that said that in the United States, 33% of the bishops would ordain women deacons, which is a big number. 33% mm-hmm. would ordain mm-hmm. women deacons. deacons. Yeah, that's a huge step. So we'll see. I mean, I'm really, I, I I, th- I think it's a great idea, and I'm, I'm all for it. Now, you sit here with your collar on, and you wanted to put your jacket on, and I said, this is not TV, so it's okay. But <laughs> is it hard for you on a personal level? Do you feel like when you go out onto the street and you're wearing your collar or your, that you get weird reactions? Well, now it is. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, in 2002, when everything happened in Boston, the first, you know, kind of big crisis, I got spat on twice in the subway. Someone spat on me. And, you know, you get crazy looks. And then it died down, you know, mm-hmm. after it, it seemed that it was over. But with all the sort of revelations of what's been going on, and, you know, most of them are in the past, but still they're really horrifying for people. But the revelations are in the present. Yeah. 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 Honestly, it's really embarrassing and shaming because, you know, you are you are connected with, you are seen as, even though all the priests who are who were uh, abusers are out of the priesthood, right? So no one who's an abuser is wearing a collar. They're not allowed to. They're not. They're not functioning as priests. Nonetheless, when you wear a collar, you are, uh, you know, identified in some people's minds as a pedophile, which is like I think the worst thing you can be in society. I mean, truly, these are the people that get beat up in in jail, you know, by the other inmates. So it's it's embarrassing and shaming. By the same token. You know, you don't, you're not supposed to enter the priesthood to be put on a pedestal and everybody think you're so wonderful. And, you know, Jesus, too, gets spat on. So if they can do it to him, why wouldn't they do it to me? It, it doesn't happen that frequently. And you also, you also get a lot of sympathy. People, Catholics come up to you and say, Father, I know it's just a few percentage of people. We love you. We support you. But like on the subway and the street, you people, people make comments. And, and how do you find... Do you find yourself coming back and having to take a deep breath or come in here into this sanctuary and say, like, give me the strength to keep going? Yeah, you know, it it doesn't happen that much. I mean, online, it's a lot worse. And that's just you have to say some of these people, you know, if they're if they're attacking you for things that you've never done, you have to say they don't know what they're talking about. 
But in terms of people being angry with the church for sex abuse, you have to kind of take it because I'm part of the church and, you know, I'm a representative of the church. But you also have to say, look, I'm going to do my best to make sure this never happens again to kind of confront it. I mean, one of the nice things about the work I do is I can write about it a lot and I've written about it and talked about it a lot. But also in terms of being uh, targeted for something you didn't do, I mean, this happened to Jesus. And so we're supposed to, as priests, at our ordination, you know, will you conform your life to that of Christ's? And that's what you're that's what you're doing. That that's part of the that's part of the deal, basically. Do you think you're more apt to create change, impact change by staying in the priesthood? Yeah. Compared to leaving and saying, I'm so disappointed in my church, I'm gonna take my devotion to Jesus and the meaning I get there and do it someplace else. Well, I tell you, um, so after my first two years as a novice, I made vows and the word we use is forever you know poverty chastity and obedience as a jesuit forever and then 20 years later i took what's called my final vows and then i again said forever and i was also ordained and i said forever so you know i've made a promise to god to stick it you know stick it out and to stay with the church and i look at it as you know kind of for better or worse and this is certainly the worst Uh, this is the worst part and yeah, I, I feel like God's called me to this life uh, at this particular time. It's a terrible time to be a Catholic and a priest, but he called me to this. And you think of, like, Jesus calling St. Peter, and, you know, Peter eventually gets crucified. And, you know, all along the way, Peter's saying to himself, well, Jesus called me to this, and so he must have a plan for me. And I think, you know, the Church really needs people to to stick it out and to, and also to call the Church to change. It really—because where would the Church be if everybody who thought it had to change left? Right. It would, I mean, it wouldn't be able to change at all. So you feel like you're actually fulfilling your own calling. Yes. I think by being faithful to the church and being faithful to the church doesn't mean not criticizing it. It means sticking with it and helping it to change. And, and you do so by the books that you write, the articles that you write, the way you use your voice in social media, because everything for a priest is a platform. It's not just standing at the altar today, Mm -hmm. right? Sure, wherever. I mean, Jesuits are supposed to, the the word in the Jesuit writing says, help souls. And that's, you know, wherever they are, whether they're online or in front of you, you know, just, you know, go where they are. That's what Jesus did. He went where people were. So that's what I try to do. Father James Martin, I want to thank you so much for this conversation about the church today, about the importance of staying in the church and trying to help it get better but calling it to make amends, calling it to apologize, calling it to look and feel different so that those who have been wronged feel that it's changing. And for those who want it to change, that they can see some physical change and feel perhaps some spiritual change as well. Truly my pleasure. Thank you. You can follow Father Martin on Twitter and you can buy his books and you can check out America Magazine. And if you're in New York, you can come see him and he will pastor to you. (laughs) Amen. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Meaningful Conversations. If you're looking for more inspiration and words of wisdom, then please sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Sunday Paper. It's free and it's good. So just visit my website, mariashriver.com to subscribe. I hope you'll also check out my book, I've Been Thinking, and its new companion, I've Been Thinking, The Journal. Like this podcast, those books were created to help you on your path to a meaningful life. More details on my website about those as well. And thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to being in community with you again right here each Monday.